Welcome to the Under One Sky podcast, a podcast exploring the biggest story of homelessness as we seek to bring together humanity in the recognition that we are all alike, just for some people, the right things in their lives have gone wrong. I'm Ollie, and on this special two-part episode, we'll be hearing from Kerry Douglas, an inspirational lady who has, in her own words, survived the streets. Kerry's story is characterised by defiant resilience in the face of deep heartache. She speaks honestly and eloquently about every facet of life on the streets. She's been there, she's lived it, and now she's intent on speaking out. She has spoken before Parliament on two occasions and is an expert to bring theory to life. Please enjoy. Hi, Carrie, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Thanks so much for joining us and giving us your time. Um, do you mind telling us a little bit about yourself? Okay, so I am Claudie born. Yeah, nice. Um, don't have a dodgy accent, but a Liverpudlian. Yeah, I thought it was Liverpudlian. <laughs> um, been around a bit, shall we say. Um, I am a literature consultant and a author, blogger. Um, yeah, I just like to use my experiences to help other people. I am proud mother of twins. Yeah. Um, yeah, nice. No, that's good. That's brilliant. Are you talking um, about myself? Because I'm a lived experience consultant and a storyteller and all that, I actually hate talking about myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, but that's it's brilliant. It's nice to get to know you a bit better. Um, and what what does the day to day look like? You know, um, just rough and trying to get out there, trying to encourage services to have me speak for them, have like mm. just putting together all my website and stuff like yeah. that. It's um. Hard work, isn't it? Trying to it's get... quite you don't like your presence online is brilliant. Like you, you put out a lot of content. It's cool. And how would your um, friends and family describe you? Um, bonkers, crazy. Um, I was described as magnetic. Um, I have a magnetic personality apparently. Um, where everyone just wants to be around me. I find that like because of where I've come from, I find it really difficult own these things so it's like when you ask questions by that I struggle but but other people think I'm amazing and I'm not <laughs> humble as well maybe um maybe so, so I think today we wanted to look at um the lived experience of homelessness I think that's what we wanted to kind of focus on yeah. um through your point of view through your experience um last episode we touched on the system um capitalist parentheses around that um, from like a policy point of view with um, Professor Keith Brown. Um, and then we talked about the failures of the system and kind of the ways in which we might be able to approach those. Um, but your story kind of really begins to unpack um, maybe those failures in a real way in, in terms of roots in, in the experience, as we said. Um, and, and your story really begins as a child. Um, which really illustrates the shortfalls and failures of the system. So first, do you mind just telling us in whatever detail you feel comfortable um, about your childhood, what it was like growing up? Um, what were the happy moments? What were the, the harder moments? Right, so happy moments were very rare. Mm. So um, it's really um, it's really quite difficult because, I mean, you talk about system failures there, and that is one of my, my goals to fix those system failures because I have been one that saw through every single one of them. Mm. Um, I was severely neglected as a child. My mum, she would not care about me or my sister, but she cared a bit more about my sister than she did me anyway. But um, 
I was very neglected. I had people in the street would ring social services reporting how neglectful my mum was. I was leaving us in our bedroom with curtains closed and and like napkins hanging off me and stuff like that, you know. So it was really quite bad. But social services were poor, they never did anything about it. Mm. And it wasn't until I was about eight, my nan took out a residence order for me and my sister, so she took custody. But my mum was very and then has bipolar, so there is some sort of reasoning behind, but not much that she can't use that as an excuse for her behaviours as such mm. there's even like there's other things going on that she's not a very nice person basically. So severely neglected as a child. Finally um went to my nan's care, but my mum came back and took us back, so then I went back to my mum. When I was ten I went into it uh, sorry, when I was eleven I went into yeah, just me. My mum didn't want me anymore, so if you don't come and get her, I'm going to either hurt her or myself. And that was the end of my time with my mum, and I became a child of the care system fully. So they had a full care plan for me until I was 21. It was, I can't remember what section it was, but it was basically social services with then my legal guardians. By the time I hit 13, now I have got mental health issues anyway, and I've been sectioned. I've been like I tried to take my own life when I was thirteen, and like, I was packed up my stomach pumps and everything. And um, but it was that hard, you know. It's like I couldn't. I felt like I didn't fit in, fit in any way. Mm. And the fact that I've got these mental health issues now, we know I've got ADHD. But if I've been in Leopold for that many years, because I've moved around the country so many times, I've put onto a waiting list, and I won't quite make the end of the waiting list. I'll move far out and I'll go onto the next waiting list. So I was running around full of rage because of neglect and nobody gave me money about me, nobody cared. Plus I've got these raging mental health issues where I can't actually follow authority or come under authority. Now, given the fact that I was so neglected as a child as well, there was no boundaries in place anyway. So that combination, by the time I was 13, I was running up the West End, I was sleeping out rough. And the thing is, when I when I first started sleeping rough, I met a load of people on Charing train station, and they were like me, they were just like me. They had been cast out by society, shouldn't say, because they weren't behaving, they weren't following the rules, so therefore just disappeared, left to rot on the street, basically. And that's how it was. But when I was thirteen, I was running away at the West End, and I just felt like these people were more my family than anybody else, kindred spirit sort of thing. You know, we were all in the same boat. We all knew what it felt like to be unloved. You know, cast aside like old boots, I say, because that's what it felt like. You know, nobody actually cares. You go back mm-hmm. to the foster basement or wherever you were living, and there was no compassion. There was no love or anything like that it was mainly just paycheck for most of them you know and it's like yeah. and you quite easily discard you oh you've run away once you can't go with this no more you can go you know nobody stopped to say well why is she doing this why is she so hell-bent and sleeping rough rather than being in this home that would put her in well i'm not being funny you haven't really checked in this home like for example one of my foster cases that i'm not even exaggerating and then about 20 cats Right, it's filthy. Cats were running across the benches. The the like, when I first moved in, she went, "What do you like to eat?" I was like, "Pot noodles and crab sticks." Right? She went out and filled the cupboards up with pot noodles and crab sticks in the fridge. Right? And I'm thinking, well, 
just because I like that, you should be influencing me to, yeah, you know, adult. to help yeah. you know, you should know better. You shouldn't be letting a child dictate to you. But the thing is, I'm asthmatic, right? And yeah. these cats, I'm allergic to most of them. Now I've got these cat hairs all over the bench where I'm eating. They're all in my bed and everything, you know, and it's like, and I tried to tell the social and they're like, not doing anything about it. Oh, well, you've got nowhere else to go. So I'd run away. And yeah. they like, well, why are you running away from I'm like, well, you're not listening to me when I tell you that I'm, I'm not well. I'm coughing like mad and you're just ignoring me. So the fact that they would just stick with anyone rather yeah. than look at the, the pros and the cons of the situation. And then eventually, I think I was 17 when they finally just said, no, there's nothing more we're going to do for you. I was still using like aftercare services. And then when I fell pregnant at 19, they were like, we're going to take this baby off you because of your chaoticness, the way that you've always, right. Because I was very rude. I was aggressive. You know, I was just walking around with this big ball of hate hanging over my head against the walls. And they're like, great cloud, cow that like bothered me everywhere. Because I was like, well, you don't care about me. So why should I care about what you? you think sort of things, you know what I mean? And that's how I became. And then when I lost Jack, I hated him because of the fact that, you know, all I've ever wanted is unconditional love and you just stole that away from me. Yeah. Even giving me a real opportunity to prove that I have a maternal instinct. For me, because I lost out on that as a child, my mum didn't, like, all I ever wanted was unconditional love. I just wanted to experience unconditional love. So to steal that away from me, that was it. I was like, no, live or die. Just spiral. And I just, yeah, I just spank. Um, unfortunately, my baby's dad was a heroin addict. She didn't know it's last. And then six months, eight months, it well, was phase six, seven months into the pregnancy it was when they said they were going to take him off and jack off with me. My aunt was like, oh, yeah, I just have, have a line of that. Right, and he gave me some heroin and then I became a bit heroin. I thought, well, I've got nothing to lose. They're already taken baby off the days or what does it matter and then that was it I was addicted pretty much instantly mm. and they removed Jack as, as he was born they didn't like that oh, I had the days in the ward and then they put him into special care baby units that I couldn't get to him you know he wasn't withdrawing or anything but they took him yeah they said I couldn't look after him and the fact that my ex was coming in and out and reading and in the hospital and stuff yeah. it was just horrible and he left him people on the side even though I, I was completely clean, I, I couldn't even get out of bed. Yeah, it all went wrong. So it was a really horrible experience. But then I was like, right, I can't do this anymore. And I, that all happened out there in the world phase. So when they took Jack that Christmas, he's 18 now, he'll be 19 this year. Um, I just went back to London and stayed there, um, taking hundreds of pounds worth of drugs a day. It wasn't very long after that that I split up with that partner because I just resented them for yeah, now and all that. Learning. Yeah, like taking away like, Jack. Yeah, I mean, fair dues about him. I wouldn't have Jack, but it was the case that he didn't care. All he cared about was where his next picture was coming from. I was too about anything, you know. Unfortunately, like he died a couple of years ago. He had a heroin overdose, and it happened to be a year before Jack come and found me. So Jack, I'm very much in touch with Jack now. Jack is, he lives up the road. I'm like really? when you know yeah. so yeah things and roundabouts he found me when i was six, when he was 16 and the fact he said to me like you've exceeded my expectations because he's yeah. expecting to find me and me still being that little junkie walking around with blood all over my clothes not caring about anything you know but instead 
I'm out there and I'm trying to use what I know to help others grow, you know? That's a strange thing that Jack's impression and kind of assumption was is probably not too dissimilar to kind of a lot of people's view of, of, of junkies. Of, it's the stigma. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's my, what's one of my goals to remove the stigma. Like homelessness, mental health issues, even HIV, you know, because mm. I have got HIV. I've contracted that during that 19 to 24. I can't say specifically how I got it because I've put myself in so many risky situations. You know, it could be from injecting, it could be from other stuff as well, you know, but I've always felt the shame surround me since I've got that diagnosis. I'm only there, you know, and I've had people say to me, like, they didn't even want to issue off me because they were scared they were going to catch that, you know, or share the drink with me. It's like, you have no idea. There's more to it than that. And that's the stigma attached to homelessness as well. It's that, that shunning from it. And it's the bit in. And it's kind of the invisible, um, quotation marks from that invisible population of society that's kind of ignored, neglected, not kind of conforming to mainstream society. And then that kind of comes with a whole bunch of stigma. Um, yeah. Can we, can we kind of go back a little bit and just kind of, because we whistled through that and that was really helpful just kind of get the whole picture. In terms of your childhood, so how many how many foster homes were you in? I'm not even joking. I can't tell you too many. I lived in every placement available in Beckley area in um, Kent. And then I had to move out to Eastbourne. I had to move out to Crawley, you know, because there was just no placement. I basically ran out of placement in the Bexley area. That's yeah. where that's where I was living as a teenager, like in the area of Kent. They would run out of placements there because she kept running away and stuff. So um, they had to put me out. And um, how long was the longest you were at a, a placement? Right. So there was actually three successful placements out of about 30. That's what even though there's so many placements. It was three. There was my first ever one. She was mm. amazing. What was that like? And there was my last ever one. It was, she made me feel like part of the family. And I think that's why my expectations were so high about that compassion and the love yeah. and empathy. They finally found that. Yeah, so the first place meant she was raised, and I'm still in contact with her today. Mm. And, um, yeah, she just treated me like I was her own daughter. Uh, every five minutes, she you know, I love you, Cal. You know, and it just meant that's what I wanted. If someone's coming, they love me, you know. So I'm loved. And then... Um, that, my mum took me home after about a year. Okay, so it's kind of like during that tricky time. Yeah, so this was when I first went into play. I was under, my mum still had PR at the time, parental responsibility. Okay. But then she took me home and then it lasted about two, three weeks and then child protection had to come in and take me completely because my mum's boyfriend had kissed my arms up to get back, behind my back and dragging it upstairs by my hair. My mum chose the engine to leave me, blah, blah, blah. So child protection had come in and took me away because it was evident that it happened. You know, I had marks and I was in a lot of pain. I had to go and get an extra on my arm because I thought it was broken, but it just like been ripped out of socket. You know, so there was evidence there, but she still didn't believe me. Now, when your own mother chooses to believe someone else over you, when you know you're telling the truth, that is hard as well, you know, so... When they took me then, I was just like, oh, F the lot, yeah, F the lot, yeah, you don't care what I've got to say, you know. And then, yeah. then I went back to Jane, who was there very little time, and I started running away because 
it just didn't feel the same the second time I went there. So Jane couldn't have me there because she had other kids like as well. And she couldn't have to do them to disabled children as well. So it was at that point I was just coming into my teenage years, I was very rebellious, hormonal, etc. You know, so I did become very hard to handle. Yeah. Um, I was shoplifting. I was just doing anything to get attention, really. And then that was it because she put me back. And then I felt really rejected there. So then, from then on, I just ran away from everything across the place. And then my nan tried to take me back for a little bit again. What was the relationship like with your nan? Um, I feel so guilty now because she just tried to look after me. But, but at the point that she took me back when I was like a teenager, too late i was already off the rails by then you know and she was disabled as well like she my nan had um hernia and stuff and she couldn't walk she couldn't walk to the shop stuff mm. like that she was very um housebound so i did kind of I, I do i feel really guilty for the way that yeah i was for her but it was too late i was already off the rails by the time she took me on like the second time so yeah, this is a so this is the question I want to ask. We, in the second episode, we talked to Julia Pennington, and she's a trauma expert and talks about um, how trauma is really deep, deep rooted, and how uh, it's it's hard to kind of it's it's very intangible, but also it's also weirdly tangible at the same time. Um, she said that you feel it in every fiber of your body, um, and she talks about the mother wound, about kind of this disconnect from your mother, and you might have come across the term already. Um, yeah, as maybe you just kind of talk into that a little bit. Like how how big an impact do you think that had in terms of the, the formative years of your life? It still has a huge impact on me today, to be honest. Um, so, not many people know this, but my son, my my son of the twins. So, he, look, my twins are boy and a girl, and. Unfortunately, he had to flee me last year from um, domestic abuse because their grandmother was coercively manipulating them against me and was gaslighting me and stuff like that. So we had to flee to Newcastle. And I approached social services because in my head, I live in a bubble of social services and my legal guardians yeah. to this day. And because of that new trauma and the new stress and stuff like that, I had to pick my kids up and leave 200 miles away to start again, etc. That caused a lot of triggers in me with my PTSD. I had a complete nervous breakdown, and in December, social services come in and took both my children off me. Hmm. However, after five weeks, I got my daughter back because they saw that I'm actually capable of looking after my children and meeting their needs. Hmm. However, Charlie had witnessed so much trauma; it got to, he became very abusive. You know, like. He witnessed VB when he was a baby as well. So mm. he started to now um, display trauma and it gets to the point where he's hitting me and his sister and stuff like that. So but it became crisis point. I was begging social services for help. Look, we need to adjust this now before the trauma gets deeper and he gets to the point where he's more like living my life. And that's exactly what's happening. Then it's heartbreaking. But it's that. Well, I've had to start reading this book called um, The Eighth Dead of Therapeutic Parenting because of the fact that I have no um, basics in me from when I was that age. I don't have no idea how to speak to a 13-year-old the way she's Interesting, yeah. 
So it's such a long-lasting impact. Just even the fact of having social services or legal guardian, that is now put me into a place where I feel like I can't actually cope. The impact can cause generational yeah. like, curses, I reckon, because you, your children learn from you, don't they? You know, so if you have a parent completely unstable, no love towards you or whatever, then you grow up thinking that, I don't know, I can't explain it. It's really. Uh, it makes it, no, you're making perfect sense. I believe that my trauma has impacted my parenting quite a lot because I never feel like I'm good enough. I always cry for perfection. Well, perfection is non-existent, is it? You know, when you think about it, there's no such thing as perfect. Another thing we touched upon last um, episode was um, about the link between fostering and homelessness. So it was a mad stat that it was like, you're eight times more likely to become homeless if you've been it been in the foster system and and we we touched upon it in terms of like maybe a policy point of view but from your experience and from your point of view um why do you think that's the case number one and number two um how can that be solved feeling of abandonment the feeling of unworthiness and the fact that you know i know i don't just speak for myself when i say this when i was that kid in care. All I ever used to say to carers or social workers, what do you know? You're anything it for a child. You don't care about me. You're just mm. getting paid for it. Do you still believe that? Yeah. Most okay. of them, yeah. The foster carers are just doing it for a job. They're not mm. doing it for the right reasons. Out of, say, 30 placements, I only had three that actually showed me actual love. You know, so that speaks volumes. What was the last placement like? You mentioned that was a good one. Like Chris, yeah, she was again, she was brilliant. She was lovely. I'm still in touch with her. I'm still in touch with the three decent ones today. So I'm very, um, I saw Chris only a year ago, two years ago. And she, yeah, they they really wanted me to stay. But again, I didn't know how to settle by the time I was there. I was there for my 16th birthday. I was only there a few weeks. And um, that was my last ever placement. And I was just on the toes. I was, I, I was, Ready to settle after a few times of running away, and then the second payment's down, and I was off, and that was that. We've I've also heard on other podcasts about um, on this podcast that chaos becomes normal. Does that resonate? Yeah. There's a new normal in even now. Yeah, even now I'm very chaotic. I don't mean to be. I try not to be, but yeah. I even what I've been going through with my Charlie, I've actually done a lot of work on parenting testing stuff like that I'm actually, they know that it's not me it's a problem however I do have big rooted trauma there that's preventing me but mm. you know it all comes down to that therapeutic thing I'm reading this serenation book about therapeutic parenting and I think it shows you how important early years are developmental going forward in you know so what like you have these neurons and pathways in your brain now if you're not given the fundamentals from like more to five there's no way you're going to learn them unless you go for some intense therapies and yeah. like I'm going now, you know, because your fight or flight instinct was just there at the forefront all yeah. the time, survival mode, survival mode. And then if you're not getting the correct nurture, you're going through all those life. Well, the way I point it out is kids on a normal, right, like they're coming from love and families and stuff like that, transitions like death and moving and school changes all of that 
it impacts, you know, like it, it creates trauma. And that's just natural. We have to have a little bit of trauma to be able to to, be, to build a resilient, I guess, yeah. don't we, you know? But there's a little bit of trauma, like moving from primary school to secondary school. But then there's a lot of trauma, like moving house every Even when I was with my mum, we were moving like every two, three weeks to have a different house. Every term I'd be at a new school. So, you know, that was natural for me. There was no stability whatsoever in my life. So now my brain automatically thrives in chaos situations. Does that make sense? Very much so, yeah. My instinct chaotic. So one one thing I spoke to someone about when we talked about trauma last time, um, because I, I, I massively agree with what you said in that as that resonates with other conversations I've had. Um, it's, so you're not the first person to say it. But I think, where is the line between resilience and trauma? How important is resilience in dealing with trauma? Mm. How do you grow resilience? Oh, that's, that's a good point, actually. I don't think it grows. I think, I think, to be honest, I say this quite a lot, you know, anybody, if faced with a situation, have a natural ability within them to overcome that situation. Right, and it's you know my daughter yesterday we went out there and we were carrying the shopping back and I was like, like just give me the bag because it's too heavy for me to carry. But I have back problems. I think it's been up so many years, and I was like, I'm all back. So she put the bag off me. It was quite heavy for me to handle, and I'm quite strong. And she was like, well, man, how am I ever going to get stronger if I don't fire? I went, boom. That's a good point. You know, how can you become stronger if you don't? Mm. Like pick up the bag and carry it, you know, to, to build up that strength, you've got to go through the process. Do you know what I mean? So, do you think? Say I'm and I don't know. I say, well, no, I'm not. I'm just live through it. You know, I just got up and just survived every day. For me, it's just life. Other people look and they're like, you're so strong, you're so resilient. And I'm like, well, we got to do it now. I think it's safe for you. If you were in the same position and you had to sleep a night on the street like not for fundraising or whatever but you actually had to spend a few nights on the street yeah. you would automatically feel that like it's in you it's already in you mm. it's just like these neuro pathways in the brain well it's about opening up that roadmap for the beginning you know it's like if you're living in survival mode the minute you're born you just come to survive does that make sense that, yeah that's really i think that's a really helpful answer thank you already it just needs to be woken up i would say you know you just the real born with so many gifts in us that just need to be barked really you know right. it's like there, there's that saying like god only gives you what you can handle and what really makes you stronger and i swear by it because you mm. know the things that i've had to overcome in my life i can see that there ain't nothing we can't do as people, as humans. There was nothing that we can't get through if we actually try. So we can change the track a little bit. Yeah. Um, can we talk a bit about kind of the lived experience of, of homelessness, what that looked like for you? So how did you become homeless? Homeless? I gave up my flat, really, when I moved down here. When I lost my flat, not, not down here, sorry. I had a flat in Felling, which is not far from where we are now in Gateshead. And um, like I said, I met this guy, he, was, he ended up being a heroin addict. And when they took Jack, 
I ended up sofa surfing for a little while at the end of the pregnancy, and then my mum kicked us out because we she, we were staying in her flat. She was in Lewisham in in London, yeah. in a bar, so she was letting me stay in her flat while she was there, so that she didn't lose her tenancy. Well, um, my ex kind of turned it into a bit of a drug den, so she kicked us out. Within reason, I'd be the same if that happened. <laughs> But, um, yeah, so we ended up sleeping rough. Social services knew that I was under this care plan and I was heavily pregnant, sleeping at the back of Greg's on Gates and High Street. And did they do anything? No, they just let me sleep there and then labelled me as all sorts of irresponsible and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, I'm not being funny. You didn't really do anything to help me, did you? You know, and it's like, instead, you just stole my baby off me. And I did, I felt like they'd stolen from me, you know, so I hated them anyway, so I wouldn't even ask them for help, even if I needed it, do you know what I mean? So I ended up losing Jack, and then one day we just decided to go back to London, and that was it, we were taking £100 worth of drugs a day, and that was the life. It was a case of, you wake up, well, you don't even go to sleep most days, to be fair, I'd be up for three or four days on the trot, just non-stop, you know? But I just didn't care. I just wanted to numb everything and live in a different... Like, no one was getting into my world. Like, that was my life. I would... If I did sleep, I'd wake up. Nine times out of ten, I'd have some money there that someone had left me. And then I'd go up, get sorted, like, get my drugs, get fixed. And then I'd go sit back down in the same place and beg until I've got money for my next lot or whatever, or I'd get something mm. to eat. Nine times out of ten, someone have dropped me something to eat so I wouldn't have to worry about buying food or anything, you know. And that was it. It was a vicious cycle for about five years of, like, waking up, making money, taking drugs, making money, taking drugs, making money, taking drugs, and then days later go to sleep. And I get that that is why a lot of stigma has surfaced about... Yeah, I was going to bring this up. However, my point I make very... um, Nearly every meeting I speak at, my point is, You've had a really crappy day at work, right? And you come in, and what's the first thing you want to do? You want to run a bath, you want to pour a glass of wine or open a bottle of bud and chill. You think about someone who's sleeping rough, the rubbish they have to go through every day. How do you think they wind down at the end of the night? You can't, it's double standard. We had an episode on this, yeah. Heroin is like devil's drugs, and I will say that myself, like, oh, they're the curse of the devil. However, it's the same with alcoholics, you know? People have walked past someone who sat there drinking a bottle of cider and start insulting them, but actually, hang on a minute, what do you do to wind down after a really rubbish day, mm. you know? And I, I think that does shift perspective quite a lot, you know, when I actually say that, because although they're not good things to be taking, everyone's got their vice to get through, haven't they? And if you lived that life of abandonment, and unloved, like that whole cycle, and then you're now sleeping with rats on the street. And I'm I'm sorry to be blunt when I say that. No, please do. Heed on. I've been like set about. I've had all sorts happening because I'm that tramp in the doorway. Do you know what I mean? So what do you expect me to do? Just sit there and take it, or just get off my face and numb it all? You know, when you feel like a rejected society, that's the lowest you can go you know, taking that sort of drug to be able to block it out because it does, it numbs everything, including the words that are being thrown at you constantly. I wrote a blog a couple of weeks ago saying uh, it was titled, Get a Job, You Tramp, because that's people used to shout at me. I was like, 
13, 14, 15, I'll catch up you trying to say, you don't know me. You don't know what I'm capable of. You know, I've been described as remarkable, intelligent and stuff. And it's like, but I was a homeless person sleeping in a doorway. How can that be me sort of thing? But if people meet me now without me telling them, they would never have believed that that's what I was doing in my core educational years. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, so you just, yeah. you were, you were in a state of homelessness before 19 when you kind of like, you kind of run away from home, sleep. Yeah, I was just a little runaway. Yeah. Although I slept rough, I wouldn't say I was homeless because I did okay. have a place sure. to stay, but I did choose to sleep rough. And another thing that people say, oh, well, how can someone choose? They choose to do that. They choose to do that. And it's like, well, no, you've got to think about what's the alternative choice. You know, if they're choosing to sleep in a dirty doorway that's filled with urine, why are they mm. doing that? What is their other choice? You know, I preferred to be in a dirty doorway surrounded by people that I felt loved me and got me rather than be in a place where I'm getting passed around like an old flipping dirty cross you know like I don't want it you have it I don't want it you have it you know I'm a person I'm a human being and I am not the only person a human being who's ever felt like that so it boils down to human connection ultimately and that's kind of the core of ultimate under one sky is actually it is is worth that um approval um acceptance by people that kind of understood it that got it that loved you because they were like you, that commonality yeah. um, versus kind of that comfort. I had these men on the streets that were like, leave my little sister alone. Like, I, I was, something happened to me, like, under the train station one day, like, um, someone touched me in a way they shouldn't have touched me. And these men that were like my big brothers and stuff, they intervened and they set about this man all right I'm not proud of the fact that they set about him but I was a young girl and this man was a grown man and he decided to touch me inappropriately so he then and that made me feel safe Mm. you know so the fact that somebody cared about protecting me nobody protected me when I was a little girl when I was abused you know they just didn't give a toss my mum would leave me with Tom Dick and Harry you know but these these protected me so I felt that I felt loved I felt like I felt worthy. I felt like, do you know what? Does that make sense? It's like, so they, makes sense. Yeah. You think of my family that actually genuinely cared about me. Yeah, it makes so much sense. Thank you. Um, the people that hear this and think, okay, she has, she's made a really good point, but I don't want my, I don't want to give money so it can be used for drugs. No. So what do you say to that? This is what I always say. You have a choice. You can either give them money, which is likely to enable them to substances. But I always throw in that thing as well. But you've got to remember, how do you resolve your rubbish yeah. day? You know, so if you're going to give money, know that nine times out of ten, it's going to enable them. If you don't want to give money and you want to help with food, don't just go in a shop and get them any random sandwich. Ask them what sandwich they want. That person could be a vegetarian, gluten intolerant, um, lactose intolerant. You know, it's that whole giving them a choice. Give them a choice because they're still a human being that is deserves to have a choice. And choice is always linked to dignity in that sense as well. A lot that I've heard, like a lot of people have said to me, oh, but I bought them a sandwich and they're surrounded by sandwiches and they're like, no, thank you, don't want it. It's like, well, maybe they don't like contents that's in that sandwich, but doesn't want to seem ungrateful by saying, I don't like that. 
you know. I There used to be a little lad that used to uh, beg outside Tesco's near where I used to live in Wallasey. And I used to always walk up, what you want in there? And he used to always ask for Scotch eggs. So then after that, every time I went into Tesco's, I'd buy him a couple of Scotch eggs and a bar of chocolate that he'd requested before because I knew what it was that he wanted. So you only have to ask them the once. Once you know what they're into, then you can go in and you can just be forward enough to do that. But to just assume that you know what these people want before actually engaging in conversation, personally, I say that's slightly ignorant because you're not actually doing it for the right reasons, are you? You're just trying to make yourself feel better. Well, that might be a bit overstepping it by saying that. It might not be always the case, but some people might be a bit too nervous to ask, you know, but I strongly suggest ask them what they want if they need anything they might be so stuffed because so many people have actually left them and that's all right yeah yeah exactly do not like a lot of people get put out because of the refusal or they're like oh well, that's just ignorant yeah. well, no, and, it's and then they generalize it to that well that must be every person and we yeah. talked to touch on other episodes where actually you know if someone has a bad day they don't want to really be bothered or you know, if they've just woken up or they're just sleeping or something, no one wants to be old in that in that situation. I think we mentioned that in the last episode. Thinking more about kind of homelessness and the lived experience of that. Um, do you remember what your first night was like? I was up all night. I stayed up all night, um, congregating, um, and then we all bedded down under Charing Cross train station. How many you were there? Oh, loads. This was literally just as Cardboard City had been closed down. So everybody had moved from, you know, the IMAX theatre? Waterloo IMAX theatre? Uh, yeah. It's that big cylinder thing in the middle of Waterloo. Well, that used to be Cardboard City. So all of the homeless people used to sleep there. And then back in the 90s, um, it got sold on or whatever, and then everybody got moved out. So they moved to under Charing Cross train station onto the Strand and the back of the Savoy Hotel. So that would be the home. That's mad. So yeah, off the back of the Savoy, it. like one of the nicest hotels in London. This is it. You know, you've got the most expensive place on the Strand for people to sleep wow. is a building, but then you go down the back of it. But it got to the point, obviously, they all got moved on again because how can you have that? How can you have this rich hotel with all these people sleeping in boxes outside of it, you know? And that is always the case, you know? People are like, oh, well, there's not that many homeless about. No, they're still there, but they get moved on by the police and by these posh companies because they can't have that on their doorstep, you know? And it's the same with uh, the, the the hostel I lived in, the last hostel. I had to move out because I was pregnant anyway with the twins. But couple, not very, not long at all after I left that hostel, it got closed down. But this hostel was in um, Victoria, just around the corner from Buckingham Palace. You had addicts on the doorstep all the time, screaming, shouting, you got any gear, and a scar? And you had fighting going on and stuff like that. Well, that's not good for tourism, is it? So what we're going to do, we're going to sweep you all out, lock half of you up for begging, lock some of you up for possession, and they're just going to lock them all up and move them on to the next borough. So that whole illusion of like, oh, there's not that much homelessness anymore is a, is not right because they're just being moved on from these tourist attractions. But yeah, that first night, I think I was too scared to sleep or anything. 
And what you're saying, there seems to be a, quite a big community. Oh, it's massive. It's massive. You, there's a lot of hidden homeless. There's a lot of hidden homeless as well. And what do you, you mean know? by that? So you don't see a lot of them. They're not, you know, you see some that are sitting begging and stuff, but there's a whole, whole different world of homelessness that you, you go into the day centres and there'll be Ramo. They'll be absolutely packed out with people that are homeless, but you don't even see half of them sleeping because they hide. They're, they're hidden. You know, there'll be safe for surfers or mm. there'll be um, people that can't, you know, like people that don't fit into social circles, you know, mm. but loneliness, as you want to call them. So, so would you say the majority are on the streets, like um, present, or would you say that most are kind of hidden? Um, I can't really say now so much because it's been a while since yeah. I was in that sort of life. But back in the day, I think it was 50-50, really, wow. you know. But you've got to think, even people in hostels, although they've got a roof over their head, it's not home, is it? Yeah. It's just a bed. We need to broaden our definition of homelessness. Yeah, you know, when people yeah. think homelessness, they just think rough sleepers. Well, actually, you've got sofa surfers, you've got rough sleepers, you've got hostel accommodation, you've got B&B. You know, I was watching something the other day about um, kids being ghosts in school because these parents are living in um, accommodation by like giving to them by homeless services that's miles away from their routine and stuff, but they're still classed as homeless. You know, when I moved here last year and fled and left my four bedroom house behind, I had to live in a flat that was surrounded by addicts that, and dealers. And we was even put on the same landing four doors along from a sex offender. And I've got 13 year old, well, 12 year old twins at the time. And I'm just like, there's no, you know, they just put you anywhere, whether it be on your doorstep, miles away from home, at risk, you know? So that always gets overlooked, the temporary accommodation side of things and all that, you know? There's, homelessness is a bigger picture than just rough sleeping. Yeah. What did a typical day look like? Do you know, we used to just sit on the steps at um, St. Martin's in the field. They used to, like, yeah, yeah, by Trafalgar Square. Yes, and straight the stairs facing Trafalgar Square. That's where we used to sit all day. They'd all sit drinking. I, I, I never really started using substance. I, I smoked weed because my mum gave me my first joint when I was 13. But, you know, like as of substances like alcohol and crack and all that, I didn't really touch that. I dabbled in crack when I was 17 for a couple of weeks, realised that it wasn't for me, and then I went into Connections at St Martin's when it was under 26s then. Mm. Uh, they got me a ticket up here, and I walked away from that. But then, because I can't settle in one place for long times, so I was back down in London before I knew it. Mm. But it wasn't until I was 19 that I became fully dependent on yeah. substances. Um, but that was when I realised I'd lost everything I'd ever wanted. You know, when they took my boy away from me, that was it. I didn't care anymore. And that's when I got dragged into that. But it, I think there's an assumption that everybody on the streets takes drugs or drinks alcohol. And I think that's un, that is very untrue. You do see some people that are not even dependent on substances. You know, but because of that stigma that's attached to it, instinctively everybody thinks, "Oh, you're on something, so I'm not going to help you." Yeah. You know, which is sad. Um, and that's why I always say, "Look, if you're going to give money, then just know that there is a chance that you're enabling someone, but not always." Yeah. You know. That's a fair way of doing. It. I, I think that just is the reality. I think. 
Yeah. Were there other things that you did? I remember it was World Cup one time and we all went and sat in the, the cinema. Is it the Odeon on, in um, Leicester Square? Like they opened yeah, the up. One, yeah. Yeah, so we all went and watched the matches in there and stuff. But um, the thing is, with connections, it's a mine. I love them. I've, I've used them since I was 13. I was meant to be 16, but they look like always lied about my age. And then they realised, and then I got kicked out a bit. But then when I turned 16, they let me back in. But um, like they would, they were amazing, and they would have like drop-ins from nine till two, I think it was, and you get to go shower, play pool, and stuff like that. I loved that one because it was targeted for younger people. But then a few years ago, they merged, so the older the older drop-in and the younger drop-in merged, okay. and I always said that was a big mistake because mm. now there's too many cases to um i'm a firm believer in one-to-one you know so when connections at martins was the under 26 years there wasn't that many cases for them to be able to take on one-to-one um work as well but then when it merged you're looking at like three four hundred homeless people using this they had to split it and then i had a separate drop in in the latents you know because but then that takes away the ability to do one-to-one work on a no one-size-fits-all basis. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and I think that was such a downfall. But, yeah, just doing that drop-in and like I'd do the – they had like a little recording studio downstairs. They had us painting on the walls and stuff, you know. And it, it was it was amazing. It was like a youth club. It was like a daily youth club. Um but like when they merged the services, it became unbearable to go in to the overs because it was packed out all the time. And you're looking at all different types of like situations. You've got addicts. And if you're not an addict, which I wasn't at that time when I was younger, you know, and you're mixing with adults, addicts, then you, there's that risk of being pulled into that, mm. you know. Influence in that sense again. Yeah, it was the same with Victoria Hostel. Um, it's empty now. There's 200 beds gone, just sat there, empty rooms that are empty, and it was ridiculous. All because it's around the corner from Buckingham Palace. But you know, it's like the thing they had substance misuse bit on the bottom, and then the rest of the hostel. You've got addicts. You've got um, dealers. Well, how can you have a substance misuse service where you're detoxing people while there's addicts still going upstairs? You know, there's no logic in it. You're mixing everybody together, which is making things worse rather than resolving. Does that mm. make sense? Very much so, yeah. Yeah, very much so. It's going in one place for there to be a real balance, I would say. I suppose that's what you're talking about with governments and social services and whatnot. Yeah, they look at it as, oh, we know how to fix this. We're going to make this one solution work for everybody. And actually, you can't do that because... It's, someone posted something about two two kids that were um, subject to abuse and how one went on to abuse and one one didn't, you know. And I did post it on my one, then I deleted it because I thought people are going to see it the wrong way from what I'm trying to explain. Mm. But unless you're taught, like if you've gone through a significant amount of trauma as a child, and like because of the fact that your brain is like being built up of these experiences. Unless you're given some therapeutic approach of rewiring, 
then you're never going to be able to know anything different. So, yeah, you are able to blame your past because you don't know any different, mm. you know. But that's not saying that I condone behaviours, but if you've been brought up in a world where it's been constantly abusive, you've been smacked about, then, of course, you're going to grow up thinking that that's normal behaviour. It's normalised in your mm. brain, you know. So to blame someone for the way they act is wrong, without actually doing work with them to remodel their brain. Does that make sense? Perfect sense. I mean, that's why we spent 20 minutes, half an hour talking about your childhood, because that has all informed the person you are today and things that you've struggled with and the reasons why you struggle in certain ways. And without understanding the difficulties with um, your mother and, and the bouncing between foster homes, then you can't understand, okay, what, so why, why did this happen? Why did this happen? Instead of just seeing kind of like, as I think a lot of people do, like homelessness as this kind of isolated event that everything went wrong all of a sudden whereas actually reality the, the, the issues that kind of work into that start way before so yeah ab- absolutely you said it far more eloquently than i have um yeah, it, yeah that, that's the purpose of this this episode the purpose of this podcast is to actually recognize these issues and to um not be kind of glib in kind of understanding and trying to explain homelessness but actually giving it every different facet uh awaiting and and give it um a place to be spoken about.